Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. Welcome back to the show. Delighted to be with you again today as we take a look at an inside look at self-storage investing. With us today is Jacob Vanderslice, and he is a principal at Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate endeavors throughout the United States. By focusing on this conservative and growing real estate sector, Van West has established a track record with over $195 million in real estate assets. So, Jacob, take us into the show and share an experience that helped you to be who you are today. Well, Alan, great to meet you. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah, the most memorable experience real estate related, I was in the fire service in my early 20s. I had a lot of time on my hands and uh, my buddy and I randomly bought a duplex rental property in Denver. Uh, we didn't even own a home yet. We still rented, but we bought this duplex rental and we fixed it up on our days off. We tiled it, we drywalled it, we found tenants. It was a lot of fun and it kind of got me sort of uh, addicted to the space. It was fun how you yeah, you could actually quantify the value you can create on a given real estate project versus buying stocks or bonds. All you can do is you know buy more or sell what you have. So that was the first deal many years ago and that kind of got me into the space and, and kept going and for better or for worse, here I am. Well, we're glad you're there. So Jacob, tell us about what is going on really in the uh, self-storage market. Is it still a good place to go to for investments? Well, as we all know, we're in very dynamic times right now. This market shift, I think, that we're going to see has only just begun. Self-storage, to answer your question, and I'll expand on it further, we strongly believe it's a defensible asset class uh, during good times and bad. Historically, it's performed well during economic downturns. It did great during the financial crisis. It did even better during COVID. So during times of uncertainty, we think it's a good spot to be. The challenges we're seeing in the space, and not just in self-storage, but in many other asset classes, mainly relate to the uh, to the debt environment, the capital, capital market environment, and frankly, interest rates. I think we're going to see some pain in 2023, not because the space is not going to perform well, but I think a lot of operators closed on acquisitions over the last few years with, frankly, untenable and unreasonable underwriting assumptions. And underneath those deals that were bought with aggressive assumptions, many of those operators finance their projects exclusively with floating rate debt. And depending on when you might have closed on that floating rate debt loan, say it was a year and a half or two ago, your interest rate is likely more than doubled over that time period. And given that that debt is probably 60 to 75% of your capital stack, that's a material impact on your cash flow. Given what fixed rate debt has done and how much that's gone up in the last three to six months, these floating rate loans are going to be difficult to refinance in many cases, if not impossible. So I think we're going to see going into 2023, a continued reduction in transaction volume, meaning fewer deals are going to trade. But I think we're going to start seeing some more meaningful discounts on deals that are actually transacting from uh, from sellers who, frankly, just have a debt maturity issue. So we'll we'll see what happens. Do you know what percentage of self-storage debt out there is actually in uh, floating rate debt? It depends on when the deals were closed. I have to look this up. Most of it is fixed rate debt with varying terms. But the, the stuff that's fixed rate debt, let's say somebody's owned a deal for five years and they haven't refinanced, they have a loan maturity coming up here pretty soon if it's a five-year note. So they're going to be at the same mercy of the floating rate debt guys, but they're going to have the advantage of hopefully they've been amortizing, they've burned off some principal. They're going to have to make a hard choice. They're going to have to pay off a cheap rate 
and get a new much higher rate, which they may not be able to do, or they're going to have to sell. Not sure what the ratio is, but we're familiar with a lot of portfolios who have uh, floating rate debt that's higher than 70% of their total debt. Wow. So those are going to be some challenging uh, circumstances here uh, if they're not already. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't have some pretty understanding uh, equity investors, they may find themselves in trouble. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> not just the equity. It's, um, I think the most dangerous partner you can possibly have in real estate is a lender that's under duress. So yeah. let's say they're missing loan covenants on some of these deals, you know, from a debt service coverage ratio perspective. For those of us listening who aren't familiar with that, pretty much uh, in a commercial loan, even though you might be paying your mortgage, making your loan payments, you can still potentially be in default based on what the loan covenants say. And if that lender is under duress from a regulatory perspective or a Texas ratio perspective, they could potentially call the note. If they're healthy and you're in violation of the loan covenant, it's a good relationship. They could kind of pretend and extend. But yeah, the equity investors is uh, certainly uh, a challenge, I think. It's going to be a challenge for some operators, but the lenders are going to be a bigger challenge. Well, talk to us a little bit more in detail here about uh, self-storage performance. You have just alluded to the fact that it performed well through downturns and even through COVID. But take us through that a little bit more detail. Yeah. If you look at quarterly REIT performance, you know, a lot of REITs are reporting net operating income, net, net operating income growth quarter over COVID quarter over 20% in some cases, basis like 23, 24%. So is this, oh, this self-storage REITs? Is that what you're Self-storage REITs, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the big operators like Extra Space, Life, Public, NSA, CubeSmart, those are those are some of the top ones. But self-storage actually, it, it benefits during times of economic disruption because really the demand drivers between or behind self-storage are life changes. So if you're, if you're getting a job, losing a job, getting married, getting divorced, upsizing or downsizing your home, changes in life are what drive demand. And typically when there's a downturn or a recession, uh, which we're either already in or going into, uh, there's a lot more life changes. So I think the consumer demand is going to be pretty robust for the foreseeable future. One of the reasons I think it's a perform well during downturns beyond just the fact that demand increases is the notion that all of the leases are month to month. So what, what that allows customers to do is they can kind of come and go as they please, even though most customers will store longer than they expect to. So it's a sticky customer base. And the month-to-month -month lease also benefits the ownership side because operators can respond real time to supply and demand changes, both at the unit level and the facility level. So for example, if a given unit type's really full, that operator can raise rates with a 30-day notice and probably not experience any move-outs. So I think the historically increased consumer demand during a softening event and the fact the leases and the revenue management are very dynamic, I think are uh, are two of the reasons why the asset class is sustained and, and good times and bad. Well, Jacob, tell us about scalability in terms of self-storage. Well, one of the common misconceptions about self-storage is it's easy to operate. It's not like an apartment building, you know, no tenants, no toilets, no problem. You know, parts of that are true, but largely that's completely untrue. Self-storage is very operationally intensive. We are a self-storage operator, primarily before we're a self-storage investor. We have hundreds and hundreds of customers moving in and moving out every month. Depending on the location, we can have theft issues here and there. We have gate systems go down. We can have uh, homeless folks sleeping in units when they're not supposed to. That's more in urban infill locations. It's a challenging asset class to operate. Uh, and it's, it's to a degree almost like hospitality. And you might think that's a big stretch, but the hotel business, um, short-term leases, and our really leases, obviously, you're running a room for a night. But the revenue management is also very dynamic. And it's also very customer service intensive. So it's challenging to operate. Uh, so having a good operational platform is critical to success of the business. But as far as scalability and durability, you know, I mentioned all the things that are bad with it. 
But some of the positives are the fact that your operating expenses are generally a lot lower than, say, operating an apartment building. You know, you've got uh, got one bathroom in the leasing office versus potentially hundreds of bathrooms and kitchens in an apartment building. And if uh, for delinquency in the self-storage business, delinquency for the operator or the owner, at least, is a lot easier to resolve than in a, in a multifamily apartment building. If you're trying to do an eviction in New York, obviously, on a rental unit, you're going to be tied up in the courts for a long time. In self-storage, if the customer doesn't pay, their gate code gets turned off. And eventually, if it goes far enough, their contents get auctioned and a new customer that hopefully is going to pay moves in. So resolving delinquency issues is a lot simpler. Operating expenses are lower. And I think those are two of uh, several reasons why the asset class, we believe, is a lot more scalable, durable, and repeatable than uh, than some others. I do love multifamily. I think it's defensible. We've done a lot of it. I think as the, the country continues to shift from a nation of homeowners to a nation of renters, there's going to be sustained and increased demand for attainably priced rental housing. It's going to be around here for a, for a long time. But uh, again, there, there, there come some challenges with that. Well, certainly challenges with whatever investment you're looking at. None, none of it's easy. I don't care what the asset class is. You know, being a real estate owner operator is always going to come with its fair set of challenges. Right. Well, in terms of the operational intensity, you were talking before we got on the show that you, you live in Denver and you have property, you have storage facilities in North Carolina. So obviously you have management on site in the North Carolina facilities. So talk to us about management and how you are managing these operationally intensive properties at a distance. Certainly. Well, like anything, it's been an evolution over time. We, we used to outsource our management to the large REITs. They do third-party management. And, um, you know, we were dazzled with their revenue management algorithms, their branding, their marketing. And after the honeymoon kind of wound down, we started to realize over time that our interests weren't really aligned. Their expense loads were above market and frankly bloated. There are a fair number of ancillary revenue streams in storage, like tenant insurance. That's a big piece of our revenue uh, that the REITs will keep or keep most of, and they don't split that yeah. with their parties. So over time, we began forming our own management platform, took our deals back from the REITs, and then since have managed everything that we've bought. So that's really the key to our success, I think, so far. Um, in addition to just discipline underwriting and responsible financing, just the uh, controlling your own operational platform. So as far as staffing goes, um, that certainly remains a challenge. Uh, there's there's a systemic labor shortage in the country. Some markets are more difficult than others. Early on, we experimented with remote management, meaning we didn't have a full-time staff member at a, at a number of our facilities. Other operators have figured this out. We weren't able to. Uh, we just had too many customer service issues. If a gate system went down or a unit was overlocked and somebody wasn't on site, we had some folks who were not happy. So we, we kind of evolved into staffing almost all of our properties. Um, so depending on the market, we have... Uh, um, full-time regional manager that oversees the area. And then we have our various on-site managers. If we buy a facility that's relatively small, you know, single-story drive-up, non-climate controlled, and it's near one of the deals we already own, we'll run that as a satellite location from one of our staff locations if it's really close by. But beyond a handful of deal types like that, everything we have is staffed with a, with a full-time on-site manager. So we travel a lot, as you can imagine, to not only look at deals, but uh, visit and inspect our existing portfolio. And uh, really our teammates out there on the ground are who are responsible for all this value creation. Remote management, as I mentioned earlier, has worked for others, didn't work for us. Uh, so we're, the, we're for the most part staffed. And that's how we've been able to scale to all these different target markets throughout the Midwest, Southeast, South, Southwest. And your your full-time staff, is that just generally one person? Are they putting in 40 hours a week or what, what, are, they, what are they doing? 
Yeah, we our average deal will have um, one full time employee and one part time employee. So they'll uh, they'll they'll double cover on some shifts that are a lot more busy. Some folks only want twenty hours a week. So on average, we have one and a half employees per facility, depending on okay. the deal. Uh, some of our larger ones that are over eighty thousand square feet, just climate controlled, bigger buildings, will have two full time staff members. But yeah, one and a half to two, depending on the deal. So the office hours, I'm I'm guessing, are Monday through Friday, basically. Then yeah, we do weekends too, and office hours are. Um, you know, they're kind of driven by the submarket to a degree, especially in our infill environments like Denver and some other, you know, more densely populated locations. Bad things tend to happen after 10 o'clock at night. Generally, nothing good is happening. Uh, you okay. know, occasionally a business owner might want to get in there and, you know, stock up his, uh, his beverage truck or something after hours. But we have some deals that are 24 hour access, but for the most part, staffed hours are nine to six and access hours generally seven to 10. Uh, a lot of our deals are open on weekends, both days. Some are just open on Saturdays. So really, it depends on the deal and the, and the submarket. Well, talk to us here about uh, self-storage uh, syndications and uh, self-storage syndication funds. Yeah. For those of us who are listening or kind of new to the space, there's really types. There's two types of private vehicles in real estate that someone can invest through. One is a syndication, which is typically a single asset. Uh, a sponsor raises money for one deal. It's one building, one location, whether it's development or value add. And a fund is similar to a syndication but a fund traditionally is a collection of assets. So we do both deal types. Uh, we have, um, we're on our third storage fund. We also do syndications. But one of the advantages specifically of a, of a fund is let's say the fund you invest in has 20 properties. Inevitably, in a given quarter, two of those might be behind forecast for whatever reason. Slower revenue growth, maybe a one-time operating expense issue, but they're balanced out by by the other, say, 18 deals that are on or ahead of forecast. So when you invest in a fund, it's almost like a mutual fund to a degree of that asset class. And inherently, you've got more geographic and cash flow diversification. The disadvantage to a fund, though, depending on the investor type, is you're investing in more of a strategy than you are into a deal. So you may not like Michigan for whatever reason. We have deals in Michigan. We like Michigan. You may not want to invest in Michigan though. And the fund could buy a deal in Michigan at some point during its deployment period. So that's kind of one, one issue with, um, with a fund is maybe you're not controlling geographically uh, where your dollars go as much. Whereas syndications, you can pick and choose. It's a specific location. It's an address. You can street view it. You can you can look at the building. And some investors like funds, some like syndications. Our third storage fund, Fund 3, we're only buying existing storage facilities in various target markets where we can add value first with capital improvements, make them prettier, but mainly through operational uh, efficiencies, just bringing below market customers up to market rents, controlling operating expenses, better branding. And then outside of Fund 3, we're also doing syndications. Our syndications are generally limited to ground up development projects. We chose to keep those out of our fund just because the strategy is a little bit too different, kind of a different risk profile. The targeted return was incrementally higher, but we didn't think it was appropriate to layer those in. So we're, we're capitalizing our various ground-up development projects and syndications and all of our, uh, all of our, all of our acquisitions for, uh, that are existing facilities with a value-add component are going into our fund. Well, what are uh, cash flows like in the self-storage industry? Well, universally, depending on what your debt situation is, Cash flow in all of real estate, if you're buying a new deal, expectations for cash flow have gone down since this time last year. And that's largely because asset values are still, in my opinion, inflated and the cost of capital on the debt side has doubled. So mm -hmm. if you're paying more or less the same price you were a year ago, maybe a little bit less, but you're financing now at a six and a half versus a three and a half, your cash flow is inherently going to be a lot lighter. 
So it kind of depends on the environment. But in, in our portfolio, and if you look at going in cash flow, we're sourcing a variety of deal types. Uh, we're doing here and there lease up deals, for example, that are newly opened with very low physical occupancy. So the year one cash flow on a deal like that by design is going to be very light. We're buying other deals that are 90% physically occupied, but their rents are below market. So our year one plan on those is bringing below market customers up to market rates while still retaining occupancy. And the cash flows on those are, are much more attractive. But in terms of our, our targeted yield on cost and all the deals that we do, we targeting we target stabilizing to between a seven and a half to eight and a half percent yield on cost or cap rate within about three years of an acquisition. And depending on your debt and equity and your interest rate, that that translates to about a eight to ten percent uh, cash on cash dividend yield at the fund level. So that's generally our target. But when you when you ask about kind of the cash flows in the space, you got to put context around the deal, of course. And if it's a higher quality asset in a very well located, uh, very strong location that's newer construction, we'll accept a lower dividend yield and a lower return because of that implication of uh, the deal being a little safer, a little more desirable when it comes time to monetize it. And deals that might be a little more tired, older product type, and maybe a secondary or tertiary market will require a higher return and, and higher recurring revenue stream to, to kind of offset that uh, subjective and objective risk profile. Well, what are the parameters you use when you are selecting a site for a, a self-storage unit or facility? Yeah, specifically as it relates to self-storage, it kind of depends on whether it's development or a value-add acquisition. Uh, but one of the first things we look at are, are the supply ratios and the given submarket. So nationally, there's about eight square feet per capita of storage. Historically, when you're getting well over that number, that market might be oversupplied with product. And when you're underneath that number, it might be undersupplied. It might make sense to do a deal. So the first thing we look at are supply ratios. And then we look at competitive rents too. We uh, obviously endeavor to buy deals that have in-place rents that are well below market. And we can add value by bringing those customers up to market rates. So a rent analysis is very important in the submarket. And third, we we look for just generally rooftops and, and population density. We like to see a fair number of residential units, whether it's single family homes or multifamily apartments nearby the facility. Uh, we don't buy in overly rural locations with small population centers. So those are really kind of three brief fundamentals we look at, look for in our deal selection process. But beyond that, the fundamentals really kind of transcend all asset classes. Is it a good location? Is it a submarket with uh, population growth and wage growth? Are people moving out of the submarket or moving into it? Those are all factors we look at kind of together um, as it relates to self-storage, but also uh, real estate in general. Um, I think your biggest risk in the asset class beyond just standard market risks in real estate, like rising interest rates or rising cap rates, I think your biggest risk is the introduction of unforecasted new supply. So if you buy a deal somewhere and you're not doing your research, and five other operators come out of the ground within two miles of you over the next couple of years, you're going to have a material impact in the negative direction on your occupancy and on your rents. So we also look at what the risk is of new development happening. We look at zoning, we look at entitlement, building submittals, uh, building permit submittals. And objectively and subjectively, we, we analyze what the risk of is, is of a new competitor coming in anytime in the foreseeable future. And obviously you can't eliminate that risk entirely, but, uh, it's something we try to get our arms around as best we can. Yeah, I was thinking that would be difficult to get your arms around. So what are some of the things you're doing to mitigate that really unforeseen risk in, our, in many ways? Yeah, there's a couple of things we, we do. Again, we do our best to do this. We can't entirely mitigate it. But one of them is we look at the, the zoning in the submarket and how much of the land in that submarket allows for a self-storage use. 
So we've seen a trend the last couple of years of municipalities around the country pulling back their zoning as it relates to getting self-storage approved. So it's more difficult than it's ever been to build from an entitlement perspective, but it's also difficult given what hard costs have done, right? Materials and labor are substantially higher than they were a couple of years ago. So we'll look at zoning. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, we'll pull uh, building permits. If someone submitted for a building permit, it's probably going to get built. Different markets refer to this in different ways. But uh, one thing we look for too are are concept reviews or pre-flights with the city. Those are public record. So somebody goes in for a pre-flight with the city, you can look those up and see if they're considering doing storage and where. And then we'll kind of look at all these different factors and decide what's the likelihood of this deal getting built uh, and when. Like if they pulled a bank loan and recorded against the property, well, they've done that. It's probably going whether they have a building permit or they don't and or whether it's just a you know a guy with some land shopping whether he could do storage on that site so there's a lot of factors that go into it but uh our greatest risk mitigant though is we target buying deals that are all in at or below replacement cost so if a competitor does get built nearby in theory their cost basis on a per foot per foot basis is going to be substantially higher than ours so their rents are going to have to be incrementally higher than ours as well to achieve the same total yield on cost. So for example, we had a deal get built uh, a mile away from one of our deals in Florida. We bought ours really cheap and they spent a lot of money to build theirs. It didn't negatively per- affect the performance of our facility because our we could keep our rents about 40% lower than theirs. So if it does happen, there, there's ways to kind of navigate it. But those are a few examples of all the things we look at going into a new deal to try and uh, understand the risk of new competition being introduced. Jacob, tell us uh, what you have to offer our uh, audience and how it is that they can take advantage of that. Yeah. Um, well, we got a couple different vehicles, as I mentioned. Uh, we're on our third storage fund right now, raising capital for that. Uh, we also have a number of development syndications that are coming up in the pipeline in Q1. We, uh, we've raised a fair amount of private capital over our careers. Uh, we care a lot about our, our investors. We'd love to educate and we obviously love to make each other money. Uh, so those are the options we have right now. And if you're considering investing in a private vehicle, I think the the worst thing you can do is kind of hurry up and wait. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, indecision is, is worse than uh, sometimes a wrong decision. Uh, but there's a lot of operators out there. If you, if you do your research in the multifamily space, uh, industrial space, self-storage like us, um, single family homes, I think... Uh, Investing in a private fund or syndication is a great way to get exposure to the asset class without having to do all the heavy lifting yourself. And all of that information will be in our show notes. Well, just briefly, Jacob, what has been your biggest setback that you've had to deal with in the self-storage industry? Well, I would say more recently, it's been a labor shortage. We've got some markets, we've got awesome teammates in, have been with us for a long time. You get other markets, for whatever reason, Columbus, Ohio. It's really tough for us to find good people, and it's really tough for us to retain them. So staffing shortages the last year has been one of our biggest challenges in this space. Sometimes it affects the deal uh, in a quantifiable way, and sometimes it doesn't. It's really hard to say, like, if a deal is underperforming for whatever reason is because of a staffing issue or, you know, just a market supply issue, but definitely staffing. So we're, we're paying, uh, we're paying a lot more from an hourly basis than we used to. We're focused a lot more on compensating talented people for what they're worth. And, um, I think we've kind of turned the, turned the ship to a large degree in the last couple of months, but yeah, biggest challenge has been staffing. Enlightened Investors, a delightful program we've had today. Thanks for being with us. I look forward to being with you in our next episode. And Jacob, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us today. Alan, great to meet you. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at steedtalker.com.